I want us to, um, on this Palm Sunday, look at our, thank you, my friend, look at our Palm Sunday text, the text that we have called for years the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's actually in all four Gospels, but uh, I think we'll look at it from Matthew. Is that the text that I gave? Matthew, the 21st chapter. You guys have that? All right, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Why don't we wake ourselves up a little bit? I'll read the first, and you guys read the next verse, all right? When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. Let's read together now. Saying to them, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this. The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a coat, the foal of donkey. Read with me now. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Let's read all of it together now. They brought the donkey, read with me, and the colt, and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. If there were any questions in the minds of the disciples, or even Jesus for that matter, as to how he would be received in Jerusalem, Passover-laden Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that was besieged positively by, could have been tens of thousands, possibly even more than 100,000 people from around the Mediterranean rim, Jewish people who would descend upon the city for this religious festival. If Jesus had any question how he would be received, an understanding he actually did have question because in the weeks before that, his own disciples encouraged him not to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Things were politically hot there for Jesus. There was grave potential that if he went, just like king to Memphis, there was grave potential that his life would be lost there. And yet the Bible tells us those questions were quickly dispatched as this modest company of Jesus and his disciples, perhaps even more than the 12, passed the shoulder, and for those that have been there, you know this shoulder of which I speak, the shoulder of the great Olivet Hill. That hill that as you turn the corner, the entire city of David lies majestically prone before you. I've never been there, but I've seen the pictures. As they rounded that hill and the city lay before them, they began their descent down to the city's arms. They found those arms at least partially open. As streaming forth from Jerusalem, knowing he was coming, was a group of people, a large crowd of people, that were shouting as he rounded that corner, Hosanna, which meant save now, an old Hallel psalm from his Jewish roots. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
Matthew's gospel describes this as a very large crowd. Whether it was hundreds or thousands, we don't know, but it was sizable. It was a group of people who were making their sentiments unmistakably clear, not just with their voices, but they literally were taking off their outer garments. And they were making a a veritable pavement of praise, laying their garments beneath the feet of the donkey that Jesus was riding on. The reason for all of the feverish praise and veneration was clear. He was their long-awaited king. He was the one that they would hitch all of their hopes to. He was the long-awaited Messiah who would restore them as a nation to their hyper-idealized vision of a past monarchy, the Davidic monarchy. In their minds, there was a legendary period in Israel's history that this Messiah would now return them to. He was, to coin a much-used phrase these days, he was going to make Israel great again. And he had the resume for sure. And that was not simply an allusion to Donald Trump. Every leader seemingly these days appeals to the sentiment and nostalgia of our idealized visions of a past. He had the resume. Vouching for this resume was the uh, Paschal Passover pilgrims that had come down from the Galilee, the region up in the north where Jesus had done 90% of his ministry. This was a group of people who had been eyewitnesses to his water walking, his dead people raising, his blind eye healing, miracle working power. And they were there in that crowd from the Galilee and they were lauding him. There was another group of people there from Jerusalem who were equally lauding him as a miracle worker because they, just a few weeks before, had been witness to his raising Lazarus from the dead. And if they were not eyewitnesses, they were simply ear, or they were at least ear witnesses of this resurrection just a few miles away in Bethany. The bottom line is this group of people meeting Jesus on the road that day as he approached on the lowly donkey. They were saying clearly, this is the Messiah for whom we have been pining for centuries. This is the guy who's going to drop Rome to its knees. This is the one who's going to finally usher in the kingdom of God. And gone are going to be the days that Israel is little more than a rag doll caught between Asia and Europe and African powers. Gone will be the days that this rag doll torn between the mouths of these Rottweilers and Dobermans, these large kingdoms like Assyria and the Ottomans and the Egyptians. This was their king. The rag doll would rise up beneath his leadership, this miracle worker, and the other nations would be subjugated and bowed. And yet in their hosannas, Jesus heard another strand that perhaps the disciples didn't hear. And even those who created the strands could not hear. Jesus heard the hidden, the hidden portent, the hidden prophecy of betrayal. Jesus knew within days that their praises would corrupt into curses. Jesus knew that their adulation would spiral down into condemnation as this group of people would quickly realize he was not what they had thought. This one so filled with promise sitting on the back of that donkey, this one who rode into Jerusalem 
with the bound up hopes of a nation replete on his shoulders. This one who approached this group of people who fancied themselves to be the central people of God, this one would disappoint them sorely in the coming days. He would turn weak. His miracle working hands would be pocketed. He would, over the next few days, from Sunday till his crucifixion on Friday, he would pathetically misplay every political hand offered him. Even one from his innermost circle, a man named Judas, would become so confused that he would sell him for a mere pocket full of silver. Palm Sunday was followed by a few days of intrigue, sore disappointment, and questions in the lives of those who followed him and praised him. Questions like, where are the miracles? Where is the power? Where is that Maccabean, those rabbis from decades before Christ who had dropped Rome to its knees at one point? Where was the Maccabean courage to stand up for righteousness? At the very least, Jesus, silent one, where was the otherworldly wisdom that would subvert the authority of the powers that be, that would leave all of them punch drunk as a grassroots movement burgeoned and swelled? Even the uh, unwilling and unwitting Roman prefect Pilate would join the confusion. As a passive, battered, and broken Jesus stood before him, Pilate looked at him and questioned why he nor his disciples offered even a modicum of defense. It was to that question, why will you not fight, that Jesus granted insight, and it was insight that heretofore he had been in countless ways trying to impart, but people were not listening. Jesus stood there bruised and whispered to Pilate through parched lips, my kingdom is not from this world. And by world, Jesus did not mean a geographical place, but by world, he meant an ideological position, truly a worldview, a new order, a way of being. Jesus, battered and bloody, said to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were from this world, my followers would be fighting. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. The palm-waving crowd misunderstood. They misunderstood the king because they misunderstood his kingdom, a word that even now in a modern context we're reticent to use. Some have replaced kingdom with beloved community, but you get the point within their context. The palm-waving crowd misunderstood the triumphantly arriving king because it fatally misunderstood the kingdom, the new order, the way of being that he would establish. You see, when Jesus rounded that Olivet Hill that day on the back of that donkey as they spread their cloaks before him, a large group of people were praising an illusion on that fateful day. They were praising an illusion. They were praising a king whose job description was constructed, please hear me, because we do it still with our gods, with our messiahs, and with our leaders. They were praising an illusion, a king whose job description was constructed by their own desires and misdirected notions. I remember the old campus crusade for Christ 
cliched admonition in its early days. God, has, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Morphing that old cliched admonition, they loved God, they loved Jesus, and they had a wonderful plan for his life. And yet, as the story goes, Jesus would have none of it. Now, lest we locate all of the blame and the failure on the palm wavers on that first Palm Sunday, that first triumphal entry, lest we put all of the blame on them for their ill-fated attempt at a misguided coronation of Jesus, um, I should point out that they were in good company that day. They were in good company that day as company goes, not only because the four Gospels are replete with stories of people who had done the same, but the first 2,000 years of our life with Jesus as a religion, we have done the same. Jesus has always carried the burden of our desires, our wishes. Jesus has always carried the onus of being what we want him to be. The stories of those who made that mistake weave their way through the Gospels thickly, and I don't have time to tell them all. But I remember how one day after feeding the 5,000, miraculously taking a few loaves and fishes and feeding a large multitude, the people were so convinced that Jesus was the Messiah that the text literally says, John 6:15 says, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him be king. And as they were trying to force Jesus into their kingdom, their way of looking at the world and how things should be, Jesus withdrew himself to a mountain alone. He escaped their coronation. It's amazing. <laughs> they weren't even going to give Jesus an opportunity to turn down the nomination. It wasn't just those that were distant or those in the periphery of his ministry, those closest to him. The 12 most intimate disciples were party to that same imprudence over and over again. One day at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus had asked him, Ask all of the disciples, who do people say that I am? A second question he offered was, who do you say that I am? To which Simon Peter stood and responded heartily, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Immediately after that, Jesus said, yes, and I must needs go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. To which the Bible said with great hubris, Peter responded and literally rebuked Jesus. Within five minutes, Simon Peter said the best thing he had ever said in his life. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And within five minutes, he said the dumbest thing he had ever said in his life. He rebuked Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Story after story, the same disciple, when Jesus, just a few days from now in the chronology of things, when Jesus got down to his feet to wash his feet, this same disciple pulled his feet away from Jesus and said, Not so, Lord, you cannot wash my feet. To which Jesus responded, If I don't wash your feet, if I cannot serve you, you have no part with me. <laughs> the part we have with Jesus is not because we serve him well, but the part we have with Jesus is dependent upon how well we allow him to serve us. What a thought. Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, if I don't wash your feet, then you won't be clean. Simon somehow got it, went to the extreme as he always did, and said, then wash my whole body. To which Jesus responded, I still, I don't want to wash your whole body. Just your feet, man. Just your feet. <laughs> the Bible says in, the, in that instant, essentially what Peter was saying was, I don't want a king who washes feet. 
Because if you're the follower of a king who washes feet, you know what that means. I don't want that kind of king. It was that same setting that the extended family of James and John came and the mother of James and John, while Jesus is about the business of feet washing, washing even Judas's feet, the mother of James and John says, would you mind when you come into your kingdom making one of my boys your vice president and the other the secretary of state? And Jesus looked at her wet, wet with waters that he had used to scrub between her boy's toes. Jesus said, woman, you don't know what you're asking for. Within hours of that ludicrous exchange, I mean, over and over and over again, our story with Jesus is missing who he is. Within hours of that, the abductors came. A large company of people came to take Jesus away. And when they did, Simon Peter pulled out his sword and went for one of the guy's heads. As Simon Peter went for the guy's head, you know, we often talk about how Simon Peter was a was a coward because around the campfire a few hours later he would say, I don't know who he is. Three times before the rooster crowed twice, Peter would say, I don't know who he is. And we say, oh, what a coward. We forget this incredibly important element or point of the story. Simon Peter was no coward. Hours before his denial, he took out a sword standing with Jesus and perhaps James and John, four men standing in the company of 300 people with swords and spears and clubs, and Simon Peter went for one of their heads. He was not a coward. But the reason he denied later was because in this moment he lost the Jesus that he thought he knew. Jesus screamed, Put it up! As the company of 300 against him reached for their swords. Simon Peter stood there with a bloody sword. A man named Malchus stood clutching the side of his head. Narrowly had the sword missed his neck, just glancing off of his head, cutting off his ear, and Jesus screamed, Put it up! This is not my kingdom, and I am not that kind of king. This is not the way we'll do things. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. As much as the sword makes sense to you, this is not my way. And underscoring the rebuke, Jesus reached down and picked up the man's dismembered ear and restored it miraculously to his place. His way of saying to Simon Peter, thank you, but no thank you. The kingdom will come, but it will not come this way. Equally mistaken that week, but mercifully received, was one of the malefactors, one of the thieves that was suspended beside Jesus. We often talk about that thief who reached out and asked for forgiveness. That's not what the Bible says at all. He was caught up in the same notion. He obviously believed in some sense of a resurrection that the disciples didn't believe in because the thief did not say, will you forgive me? The thief said, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus mercifully received that misguided prayer and said, I will. You have little idea what you just asked for, but I will. Time fails me to list all of those who took part in this campaign for a king of their own shaping. Time fails to list these last 2,000 years the churches and denominations and even countries who have called Jesus their king, assuming that he would fulfill all of their desires, satisfy all of their notions, 
and be their guide. But perhaps one final episode from the life of Jesus this week that we're now in called the Passion Week will summarize this recurring sentiment and misguided thing that we do with people like Jesus. He was on the road, the Bible said, with a group of men, two men actually, disappointed followers of Jesus on their way back to Emmaus, perhaps their hometown. He was on the road with them, the Bible said, allowing them to lament to him how Jesus was gone. Unwittingly, they did not know they were standing in the presence of Jesus. Somehow he was hidden from their recognition. As they said to Jesus, we thought this was he who would redeem Israel. We thought this was the one that was going to set things straight. They lamented that a crucified miracle worker held no potential for them. According to their definition of redemption, Jesus had nothing to offer. And yet as blind as they were to him on the road, they were just that blind to his definitions of what redemption really meant, what salvation and the kingdom of God really looked like. Because he would indeed redeem Israel, just not as they supposed, never as we suppose. And so... We return to those who received Jesus into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Those who not only thought they knew who God was, but thought they knew exactly what God was doing. Not only were they joined by many of their contemporaries and their wide miss, but they are joined by a lot of us. Correct that, by all of us. Oh, the best laid plans of mice and men. Plans for ourselves and yes, plans for God. To all of us palm wavers on this Palm Sunday as we head into our Passion Week, this is the point of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is an appeal for humility. Palm Sunday is an appeal for trust. Palm Sunday is the day that we don't put down, as my friend Gerd Ludman did, our palm branches of faith and walk away because Jesus is not what we thought he was. Because Jesus has blown up the flannel graph images of Sunday school lessons we received and the notions that we inherited and doctrines of parents and grandparents. Palm Sunday is the day that we remember even if Jesus doesn't turn out to be the king you wanted, it is a terrible overreaction to dispatch him and crucify him from your life on Friday. There is no need, Palm Sunday reminds us, to put down our palm branches and remove our coats from the road. But there is a need, and this is something that Grace Point has been championing for the last 14 years as a post-evangelical progressive Christian church, a mockery to some, messianic to others. Neither in truth, just humans trying to do their best to put down our assumptions and presumptions, our preconceived notions and constricting theologies, our stubborn insistence on conforming Jesus to our image as opposed to the saving reverse of that hapless effort. On that first Palm Sunday, those who lined the streets made the seemingly innocent mistake of inviting Jesus into their city. For 2,000 years, 
The Christian church has been teaching people to invite Jesus into their city, into their lives, into their hearts, into their kingdoms, and into their countries. But 2,000 years later, we are reminded by that first Palm Sunday that this narrowing down of the idea of salvation into an invitation of Jesus into our lives is truly a wide miss. Because from the very beginning, Jesus' way of being Savior has never been to be invited into our hearts, but Jesus' way of being Savior, exactly what he did a moment ago with these in the waters of baptism, Jesus' way of salvation is to invite us into his life, to invite us into his waters, to invite us into his kingdom. He never will be made king by us. He never will be made czar, prime minister, or president by us. He never will be made the Messiah we want. We cannot make him what he already is. The journey of salvation and redemption is a journey of recognition of and submission to something that already exists. And for those of us who have been illusioned by our designs on God, it's no wonder that we ended up religiously disillusioned. Because the quickest way to get disillusioned is to be illusioned. For those of us that have been disappointed by our God, for those of us who have been let down when Jesus did not end up being who we thought he was, there is good news in those palm branches. When it turns out that Jesus isn't what you thought he was, you can count on this, he is not less, he is more. And if you don't realize that, then the palm branches of evangelical praise can quickly get replaced by the whips of an irreverent agnosticism. The hosannas of deep faith can decline down into curses when God doesn't turn out to be who we wanted him to be. When Christ the Redeemer confuses us. Palm Sunday reminds us that we should then turn humbly back to this one who has confused us and offer to this one who is crucified Offer to him our confusion, our disappointments, and see if he cannot take those deaths of faith and then turn them into a resurrection of new and fresh spirituality. When your theology dies, it doesn't mean you have to crucify your God. That's the lesson of Palm Sunday and Passion Week. It is time to reframe, not abandon. I'll close with this. and My friend Ty Herndon, I want him to come. He's going to sing a beautiful song that I grew up with as a child, a song that has been reframed for me now. I'll read so I can get through it. An important subscript to this message is that interspersed through its preparation this week has been multiple phone calls and texts from one of my beloved friends, a couple friends of mine. When I first fielded the call interrupting my sermon preparation, I could barely recognize my friend's voice due to the tears and sobs. He and his wife had just left the obstetrician's office where they had been informed that somewhere over the weekend their long-awaited baby had died in her womb. At 21 weeks, their hearts were beginning to feel this miracle. They were in their early 40s. At 21 weeks, their hearts were beginning to feel this miracle was actually going to come true after after many years of infertility and heartbreak they were shocked 
a few months ago to find themselves pregnant, and now this. They are at the hospital as I type the last notes of my sermon. Somewhere between now and the morning, she will give birth to their lost dream. I can scarcely fathom where their heart is at this moment. They asked me to ask you to pray for them, to hold a thought for them. My friend, my friend texted me a few moments ago and said to tell you that they feel your prayers. And he said, in light of all the extenuating circumstances, he said, I got to tell you, I'm wrestling with a lot of questions about God right now. He kept coming back, though, to the word trust. My words failed me. After 33 years of doing this, they shouldn't have, but they did. And I fumbled as a pastor, not knowing what to say. I told him I would get there soon. And then I told him about this sermon. God help me, it felt very thin. My friend's a good man. He let me off the hook and he sincerely thanked me. And he said he may not feel like waving palm branches in the near future, but due to the fact that the one on the donkey also suffered and died, he felt that he could keep trusting. I'm glad Jesus has not turned out to be the kind of king that they wanted on that Sunday long ago. I'm also glad, though pained, he has not reduced himself to my designs either. Jesus is so much more than the ancient crowd or us or 2,000 years of Christianity have tried to make him or even my dear friends headed toward the hospital. And one day I trust in ways that I cannot imagine he will sit on his throne and he will have wiped every tear from our eyes and we will be thankful that he wasn't the king we wanted but the king we needed. Even that proposition escapes my ability to fully comprehend, and yet I intuit through my disappointments, my disorientations, my confusion, that the only logical response is on this Palm Sunday to lift my palm branches, even now and even here, a little higher. Buck and Dottie Rambo wrote a lot of songs wrote a lot of songs through the years in our little Pentecostal church on Scott and Porter in Paragould, Arkansas, sang every one of them. But I always told Buck, my mentor and dear friend, I always told Buck up to the day he died. I told, I told Buck that my favorite song that they ever sang, and I, I don't know if you'll remember this one, was a, was a song called Sheltered in the Arms of God. And I remember my youth pastor, Danny Langston. He was a poor Pentecostal preacher at our poor little Pentecostal church, but he had an appetite for God. Lee, we, we didn't even believe in studying Greek and Hebrew, but Danny self-taught himself Greek and Hebrew. He loved the Bible. He loved us. This guy, he would take me out to play ball, and he'd pray with me in the altar. But I remember uh, his wife was named Joyce. I remember as a young boy, Danny came down with cancer. In his late 20s, Danny had a booming voice. He used to stand in the pulpit. He was a big old robust guy, and he would sing. And his favorite song to sing was Sheltered in the Arms of God. And I watched Danny Langston go from about 270 pounds down to 120 pounds. 
over the course of six months, and about every week he would stand in the pulpit and he would sing, So let the storms rage high, the dark clouds rise, they don't worry me, for I'm sheltered safe in the arms of God. I watched him in that Pentecostal setting pray for healing, expecting healing, and even blaming himself at times when healing didn't happen. I watched him waste away, and as Paul said, the outer man perished, but the inner man was renewed. Disappointed that God did not come through, I watched Joyce with two children under the age of five bury a husband, a man who had given himself to ministry. I've been watching people for the last 49 years of my life, 33 years in ministry, wave palm branches. I've been watching people sorely disappointed. But I've been watching people like you in the midst of the disappointments keep coming back. And as Frederick Buechner said, perhaps the miracle that we believe by is not the miracle we receive, but the miracle that we, after all of this, cannot give up our hope. Because in the end, even when hope dies, this is the only dream worth dreaming. Can you say amen?